before we get into our text this morning, I actually have a picture I want to share with you guys. This is a picture from yesterday. We had about 20 of us, uh, a very uh, young and not so young, that attended the men's conference in Hartford yesterday, and it's actually called an equipping conference, meant to train up and equip men to lead in the church and at home and in their workplaces wherever they would go, to be a, a light for Christ. And uh, so we had a great time, learned lots of things. Uh, so if you see any of these guys in the picture, uh, make sure you stop them and say, what did you learn yesterday? They didn't know I was going to say that, but, but they're on the hot seat now, so they better have something. And, and more, they should hopefully know more than uh, Mr. Walter makes excellent pulled pork sandwiches uh, for, for all of us. So that was, that was a great time. Uh, honestly, it was, it was a great time of encouragement uh, to worship the Lord together, to, to be encouraged in our role as husbands and fathers and men of God. And so um, pray with me that God would reap uh, fruit from that time yesterday here in our church and in our homes and in our region. Well, this morning we're going to be uh, in the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And, and we're going to be in verse 14 uh, as, as Moses recounts the, seven of, uh, the seventh of the Ten Commandments that God gave to him on top of Mount Sinai. Let me read the verse for us. Verse 14 says, You shall not commit adultery. Well, this should make for an interesting conversation around the brunch table after the service this morning. Uh, last week, Pastor Moses led us through the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And part of his time sharing the word with us, he asked the congregation, how many of us have committed murder? All right, so let's go there today, right? Right? I won't, I won't actually ask you to, to raise your hand, but, but thinking on this commandment from Jesus' perspective, from Jesus' teaching, uh, thinking on the sixth commandment, sorry, we all would have committed murder, right? Because if you remember that passage, Jesus says, even if you harbor anger in your heart towards your brother and sister, you have effectively committed murder against them. You murdered them, right? In other, in other ways, Jesus is saying, listen, it doesn't matter just what you do physically. It actually matters what the posture of your heart is, what your heart's intent and desire is. And actually, the seventh commandment is not vastly different from the Sixth Commandment in that way. Uh, this morning, uh, I mean, if I'm just to be transparent with you guys, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture which uh, may feel uncomfortable or even taboo for some of us to be talking about in a sanctuary, in the church. But, but adultery has everything to do with, with, with what God doesn't want, his ideal, for a marriage, Right? Sex has a purpose and is designed by God. And once again, I'm going to remind us why we shouldn't shy away from this passage. Because all of Scripture, we believe, has been breathed out by God and is useful, is beneficial. It's, it, it bears fruit in, in maturing and growing up our hearts, in, in teaching us and, and and admonishing us, and, and training us, and correcting us in, in righteousness. What does Paul say? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we're not going to shy away from this passage, though it may feel uncomfortable. It certainly does for me to talk about it from the pulpit for however many minutes. Maybe this will be a really short sermon today. Maybe that's what I'll do. We'll get to brunch quicker than, than we normally would. 
But it's important for us, church, to consider what God has in mind when he says to us, you shall not commit adultery. Married or not, you shall not commit adultery. So let me pray and ask God to work in our hearts as we consider his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before your word, and we're, we're thankful that we worship a God who desires to make himself known, that, that you desire to reveal yourself to us, and not just who you are and your character, but your purposes and your plan and your promises for this world. Lord, give us hearts to hear and receive what you intend for us to know about you and, who, and, and your plans for this world. May your word be the thing that we draw our attention to. May, may the things of this world melt away as our attention uh, focuses in on, on what you are saying and speaking and declaring to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's just get right into the, to it this morning. Biblical adultery is the breaking of this one flesh relationship of marriage that's outlined for us in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Moses records, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this understanding of marriage as one flesh is a spiritual, emotional, and relational union of two lives becoming one in a sacred covenant, which is then depicted and sealed in the physical union of sex, right? It's, it's a oneness and a unity unlike anything we've experienced in this world. You won't find it in your relationship with your coworkers. No matter how great of a relationship you have with the, the male person that delivers your mail, you won't experience it there. You're not gonna, you're, you're not gonna see it in, in, in your relationships with your friends, even though you may have really great friends that you're very close with. This oneness is completely different. And it's, and it's not, sorry, it's not the purpose, the, the oneness in marriage is not the purpose for which we've been created though. So I think, think sometimes we look at marriage, we think about marriage, and we think that's the direction toward which I'm meant to live my life. I graduate high school, go on to college, get a career, get married, have children that come out as fruit of the marriage, but the pinnacle of my life is marriage. That's not true. That's not why you were created by God. We were created to be united with God. And to share that oneness of, of unity and, and faithfulness with God. So our marriages in this world, the oneness and faithfulness that we commit to in the covenant of marriage, the vows we exchange, are all meant to point to a unity and a faithfulness that we've been created to live into with the God who created us. So what I want us to take notice of is that becoming one flesh in marriage is more than sharing a, a physical embrace or, or, or occupying the same space in a home. There are some of us who are married to someone who share a home, but if we were to look in over your shoulder into your marriage, there would be nothing that reflects this spiritual unity, this oneness, this faithfulness that's outlined for us in our Bibles of what's intended to be in our marriages. What, 
words we have, Moses has given us here in, in Genesis, he uses this Hebrew word for holding fast that, that, that in Hebrew is debak, which we've, we've translated as holding fast, and it implies a devotion and an affection that binds a husband and wife together and makes them uniquely one. Right? It's more than a physical union. It's more than our bodies coming together in sex. It's a spiritual unity that, that the physical world can't touch. Right? In, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the, the Septuagint, there, these 70 priests use a Greek word that carries the meaning of being faithfully devoted to one another. I think that idea is, is lost in our current culture around sex, that, that sex is more casual. It, it, it's meant for our satisfaction. It, it, it's meant that it can come and go with many partners. But, but that's not how God has intended sex to point to a relationship with him. We are to be faithfully devoted to one another. In, in essence, the, this word that the priests use to, to translate this holding fast depicts this, the, the will of the husband exerted toward his wife and his wife alone. And, and the will of the wife exerted toward her husband and her husband alone. There is no third party involved here. There are no other, other ones involved in this one flesh union. And so at its core, adultery is a physical act that divides this one flesh union that was spiritually created by God through a covenant. I think it's always been understood, adultery has always been understood to describe any act of sexual intercourse between a married woman and a man other than her husband, or any act of sexual intercourse between a married man and a woman other than his wife. Jesus picks up on this when talking with the Pharisees about divorce in Matthew 19. And he not only captures the understanding of marriage as being faithfully devoted to one another in one flesh, but he also highlights the spiritual union that God creates and which is then depicted in the physical and sexual union of the husband and the wife. Jesus says in, in Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're one. They're one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, according to Jesus' teaching, they aren't two separate bodies of individuals, but one new spiritual unity or entity that's created out of the covenant of marriage and visibly confirmed through the unifying and the uniting of their bodies. In the New Testament, when, when, when Jesus is preaching a, a sermon on the kingdom of God, he makes it clear that the seventh commandment is not to be understood purely in, in physical terms. And we're not meant to understand it purely according to sex in or out of the marriage. See, similar to us not being able to say that we haven't murdered someone because we haven't 
uh, followed through on, on the, the anger we feel inside of our hearts so we can't say that we've been faithful to our covenant uh, with our spouse and with God merely because we haven't physically acted on those feelings that are rumbling around inside our hearts. Matthew 5, verse 27 through 28, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with, a lust, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, what Jesus is, is saying is that adultery is a matter of first and foremost of our hearts before it's a matter of enacting things out with our bodies. Lustful intent, it, it, that the word lustful intent that Jesus uses here is more than, than a passing thought or a fleeting glance. It, it's allowing these lustful thoughts to shape the desire of your heart, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's not being considerate of what is the desire and the focus of my heart. What am I longing for? What am I seeking? Toward what direction is my will exerted, right? This is probably most famously seen in the life of King David when, when he commits adultery with Bathsheba, who's the wife of Uriah, one of his, one of his soldiers, right? And, and in 2 Samuel, David sends off his army to go to battle at, in the springtime, which is the custom. What's not the custom is for the king to stay back in the palace and hang out, right? He should have been going out with his army to do battle, but he doesn't do that. That's probably, some would say, his first mistake. But, but David stays back. And one day while he's walking about on the roof of his palace, he, he, he looks across the, the village and he can see Bath, Bathsheba bathing. Now, at this point, David sends for Bathsheba. He, he, he sends and inquires about her and sends for her to come and, and they have sex. She gets pregnant, but in an attempt to now cover up their sin and cover up their mistake, David concocts his plan that ultimately gets Uriah killed. And not just, I mean, it's, it's murder, right? Let's not, let's not candy coat. I mean, this is an easy one to candy coat murder. It's harder than one. Never mind. Listen to how, oh, sorry, Uriah gets murdered, right? But, but before even Bathsheba is pregnant, before David and Bathsheba commit adultery together, there is evidence. We can see the adultery that David has already committed in his heart. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 to 3. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house and that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. That sounds so, so natural and casual. Ah, he just got up from his couch and walked around. But, but hear me when I say this. If adultery is first and foremost a matter of our hearts, then, then we need to be more thoughtful of where our hearts and our minds are reflecting and thinking and roaming about, Right? David was, uh, got up from the couch and roamed about the, 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 the roof and uh, happened upon seeing a woman bathing and, and, and determines that the woman was very beautiful. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because then what does David do? David sent and inquired about the woman. He gave space to this, this thought in his heart. What, what 
what may have been a, a, a fleeting glance or, or a, a, just a random thought became now a, a fantasy that he gave attention to and space in his heart. He began to give attention to this idea that this might be someone he could spend time with, right? So David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Even there, there was an exit ramp for David to say, oh, you know what, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have, uh, you know, and repent and walk away. But does David do that? No. See, more than just seeing that she was beautiful, David took the next step of desiring her in his heart. So even before he broke the marriage covenant by physically breaking up this one flesh union, he broke up the one flesh union by fantasizing about Bathsheba and inquiring about her. Before David was unfaithful physically with Bathsheba, he was unfaithful spiritually in his heart toward the one flesh union between Uriah and Bathsheba and ultimately toward God. So as Jesus has already told us, what God has joined together Adultery divides and destroys. See, by bringing another into the intimacy of this one flesh and, and introducing unfaithfulness into marriage, adultery destroys the covenantal oneness between these two parties by, by breaking up and destroying the faithfulness and the trust that they share between the two. Before it's a matter of physically breaking this covenant, it is a matter of spiritually breaking the faithfulness that is to be entrusted and, and held and, and protected and celebrated in one, this one flesh marriage. I mean, if we were to simply uh, uh, filter it down, in essence, committing adultery is the very opposite of love for God and love for our neighbor. It destroys it erodes at, at the foundation of faith and trust. It breaks a, a promise, a covenant. And so as a, with a number of other things in the spiritual life, God uses the physical union between a husband and a wife to point to the spiritual. He uses the, the, the physical to point to the spiritual. The steadfast and faithful union of a husband and wife depicted through exclusive and committed sex points to a steadfast and faithful spiritual union operating beyond the scope of our human eyesight. And so adultery is the enemy of spiritual, spiritual faithfulness and steadfast love. And not just Again, hear me say this, I cannot emphasize this enough, not just acting on those thoughts, but harboring space in our hearts to fantasize, to give space to, 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 to allow that faithlessness, that unfaithfulness to grow in our hearts. So I think in our, in our marriages, adultery tries to get us to believe that we can find happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction outside of the one flesh union between husband and wife. Similarly, in the spiritual life, an adulterous heart believes that we can find fulfillment and contentment and purpose 
outside of our covenantal relationship that we have with God. It, it, it believes and gives space to this idea that, that we can find joy and happiness in earning more money or, 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 or having more relationships or whatever the, world, the riches this world has to offer us. It's believing a lie. This is what Joseph, uh, I'm sorry. So, so it's believing a lie of, of, of what's available to us outside the covenant of marriage. And ultimately, it's not just a sin against our spouse, it's a sin against God. Adultery, not just for those married ones in the room, but for all of us, is an offense against God. And this is what Joseph is, is, is kind of sharing with us in Genesis 39. You remember that, that, the time when he had been uh, led to, sold into slavery and then when led to Egypt and kind of rises to the ranks in, in Potiphar's house and in, in, in the Pharaoh's uh, government. And, and while living in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife comes to him and, and, and throws herself at him, right? She, she's trying to seduce him and get him to, to, to sleep with her. And, 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 and Joseph... He's trying to figure out how to respond to her, right? In Genesis 39, after numerous attempts, Joseph tells Potiphar's wife, he says this in verse 9 of Genesis 39, He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. In other words, he's talking about Potiphar. Potiphar has made him uh, kind of like the, the, the most important person in the house apart from Potiphar, right? And he hasn't withheld anything from Joseph, Joseph except for Potiphar's wife. So Joseph says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? No, against God. See, what Joseph is making clear is that sleeping with Potiphar's wife wouldn't just be a sin against Potiphar. It would have been a sin against God because it was an offense to God's faithful and steadfast character. Joseph understood something here. That, that the, 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 the invitation, the call to be faithful and committed and, and to not commit adultery was a call to, to imitate and to reflect the very character of God, which is steadfast love and faithfulness. If you were to flip over in your Bibles to Psalm 136, you'd see this beautiful poem that, 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 that goes over back and forth, giving thanks to the Lord our God. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. It's who he is. Time and again, the, 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 the psalm repeats, his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. It's who God is. And so when we treat a, a relationship on the horizontal level in a way that, that contradicts God's character, we are offending the very character of God himself. So faithfulness to a marriage covenant is more than guarding and protecting our love for our spouse. It's, in, it's also intended to point to and protect our spiritual faithfulness in our relationship with God. And again, adultery, which is the sexual betrayal and unfaithfulness to our marriage covenant, is the physical depiction of spiritual unfaithfulness that we've had toward God throughout history. I mean, we're not, we're not saying, hey, hopefully you don't commit adultery at some point in your relationship with God. It's 
it's already been determined. You have committed adultery in your relationship with God. You have betrayed him. You have been unfaithful to God. I have been unfaithful to God. I'm not just sitting here pointing fingers at you guys. I have been unfaithful to God. And, and, And I know that because that's Israel's story. That's the people of God's story, right? I mean, it's probably not breaking news, but on countless occasions throughout the, the, the history of the Old Testament, Israel abandons their covenant with God and puts their trust in foreign kings and false, false idols and false gods, right? And on each of these occasions, guess what happens? Well, I mean, there's, there's two things we could probably predict. One, we can anticipate Israel's unfaithfulness to God. But on the flip side of that coin, you know what we can also anticipate? God's faithfulness to Israel to never abandon them, right? That's why the psalmist can write in Psalm 136, his steadfast love endures forever. It's not just a matter of enduring over a period of an eternity. It's enduring and steadfast throughout all the circumstances that Israel has walked. God is faithful. Faithfulness is not just something God does. It's who he is, and he can't be unfaithful to his covenant with us because it would contradict his nature. God wouldn't be God if he could be unfaithful to the covenant which he has made, right? God can't be unfaithful, but, but we can. And on numerous occasions, we've shown this to be true. One of those occasions is re- recorded for us in the book of Ezekiel where God confronts Israel's betrayal and he compares the people to that of an unfaithful adulterer. Israel had abandoned God's way of living and was had devoted themselves to living like the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Philistines. Israel had been literally slaughtering their own children whom God had given them and sacrificing them to false idols and all for the approval of these surrounding nations. Israel had been melting down the the precious metals that God had given them to provide for them, to care for them, and and they they took what they had melted down and turned them into these false idols to be worshipped. So not only were they melting down what God had given them or giving away what God had given them, but they were taking what they had melted down and turned it into an object that they would worship other than God. That takes a lot of forethought and planning. I mean, even if, even if it takes a little bit of forth, it's not just a matter of like one day they woke up and started worshiping idols. Their hearts betrayed God and turned from faithfulness toward him long before they actually bended their knee toward a false idol that they had created. And all of this, because their will was no longer exerted toward God, but toward the approval of the nations around them. And listen to how God describes the situation in, in Ezekiel chapter 16, in, in verse 30, starting in verse 30. He says, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, Be- because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. Where at least a prostitute gets paid, Israel didn't even receive the rewards she wanted from the nations around her. They didn't respond to Israel by, by giving Israel their approval. Israel didn't get anything out of it. 
but they chased after the approval of the nations around them. On another occasion in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, God tells Jeremiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. See, the, the people of God are described as both an adulterer and, a faith, and, and faithless because they're no longer trusting in God, but instead put their trust in the surrounding foreign nations and leaders, right? They, they've turned their back on the God who, who you know, we're, sorry, we're spreading the Ten Commandments out over a matter of a few weeks, right? But when Moses read these Ten Commandments, he's reading through the list of them. So, so if we were reading the Seventh Commandment in line with the rest of the, command, the, rest of the commandments as given, it would have been just a few moments ago, uh, previous that Israel would have heard that, that the Lord God said, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Israel, out of, out of slavery in Egypt, sorry. I and I alone shall be your God right? And then a few moments later, he's warning them about adultery. Why? Because they have this adulterous and faithless heart that's prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, right? See, the, the people of God, us people and people who, who we want to follow God, we want to be faithful to him. But there's that pesky thing called sin which we fight against in this world which we we're tempted to believe that we can find our fulfillment and our contentment outside of our covenantal relationship with God but it's just not true true or not our hearts still wander and the people of God are, are, are no different they're described as, as being faithless and, and, and an adulterer because they've turned to these foreign nations rather than maintain their trust in the Lord. So it's important that we understand that adultery is not just a physical act with physical implications. It's a spiritual act of betrayal, and it reveals a heart of faithlessness. And so what Israel found was that their lack of trust in God and his promises to them would lead to their separation from him. The passage I read in Ezekiel and Jeremiah are just two occasions where, where, where they abandoned God, and so God let go and let them choose their path where they would turn away from him. God didn't abandon them. They walked away from him, and they dealt with the consequences of walking away from him. So the command to, to not, not commit adultery is not just some inconsequential sin that's just relevant for those of us in the room who are married. That's not it at all. It's relevant to us all because each and every one of us have hearts that, as I just said, are prone to wander and prone to leave the God we love. Each of us is like faithless Israel, committing adultery in our hearts. And so the point for us to understand this morning is that adultery is more than the physical act of having sex outside of our marriage covenants. It's also a matter of our hearts being unfaithful. And that's the piece that I think that God deeply is, is desirous of, is, is cultivating a heart that is faithful. 
not just in, in, in making sure that our homes look like we're sexually faithful to our spouses, but that our hearts are faithful. Beyond the scope of our physical faithfulness, what does our heart say about the love and the commitment and the faithfulness we have toward the spouse that God has given us? And beyond that, what does our heart say about our faithfulness to the covenant God has given us through Jesus Christ? Because he has never been unfaithful with us. And so here's the good news of the gospel and why I think we should find hope in the seventh commandment. See, God gave us the seventh commandment not because he's looking to, to, to spoil our fun or take, take you know, a good time away, but because he cares about guarding and protecting and cultivating our lives and our hearts. He cares about growing a heart of faithfulness, Right? Faithful is who God is, and his purpose for us as his children is to conform us to his image. He created us in his image, but guess what? Sin came and, and, and destroyed what God created. But the gospel is Jesus coming into this world to recreate us, to, to, to rebuild us in the image of, of himself so that we might be a faithful people. Not because we're able to be faithful, but because he is faithful and he accomplishes that work in us. In other words, we may be an adulterous people whose hearts are prone to wander, but God is not content to leave us in our place of guilt and shame. Though we are unfaithful, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins if we confess, if we repent, if we say, God, no longer do I want to live according to my will, but your will. And in his grace and forgiveness, Jesus invites us into a oneness with him that's not dependent upon our faithfulness, but secure and eternal because of his faithfulness. So the seventh commandment isn't, isn't merely about marriages. It's about pursuing the kind of faithfulness and unity that God wants for all of his people. Listen to the heart of the Father and the Son reflected in Jesus' prayer in John 17. Jesus is praying before he's to be crucified and, 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 and go, or go on trial and be crucified. And, and he prays this for his disciples. He says, I, I do not ask for these only, right, in verse 20, actually, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you hear that word one a number of times in that passage? God's desire is for our unity. I mean, it's great for us to talk about unity here on the horizontal plane, but God desires even more our unity on the vertical plane, our oneness with God, our, our inclusion in God's family, our, our, our unity with him. 
And, and he has always been faithful, but our track record reveals that we have always been unfaithful. And so in God's grace, he sent his son to pay a price we could not pay, to die on the cross in such a way that we would be invited to raise to new life with him. And in that new life, we are given his faithfulness. We are clothed in his faithfulness. We are empowered to be faithful, not because we're able to do it on our own power and strength, but because he is. That's the gift of the gospel, church. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, you know, time and time again, I know what God tells me, but I struggle to be faithful to him. I struggle to obey him. I struggle to, to follow after Jesus. But that, that's where we need to hear this gospel. That Jesus' heart, the Father's heart, is praying for our unity with him, our oneness with him. Jesus is praying for you and for me that we may be one with them even as they are one. See, protecting the one flesh union of a husband and wife through, through faithfulness is a physical picture of the spiritual reality that God longs for that each and every one of his followers would experience in him. He wants us to experience oneness with him. He, he wants, he, he wants that, that faithfulness and fidelity and, and, and unity for us to have with him. So church, the seventh commandment is ultimately about faithfulness. And faithfulness to our one flesh marriage between husband and wife points to the deeper and more eternal truth, which is the spiritual oneness God desires for us to have through our spiritual union with Christ by faith. Some of us here have been betrayed in our marriage covenants and, and have been treated unfaithfully by our spouse. And I know that, that, that the pain of unfaithfulness is not easily written off or forgiven. But choose this day to come to the one who is faithful and whose steadfast love endures forever, and in that place experience healing and, and, and an eternally unchanging faithfulness toward you. Experience the unity that he invites you into because guess what? That's who God is. And that's what he desires for you. Some of us here have been betrayed, uh, have been be the betrayer. We've betrayed our marriage covenants and have been unfaithful to our spouse. Come to the one who is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And, and when, we uh, when we confess our sins and, and experience God's grace in recreating a faithful heart, that, that you too could then go back and in genuine love repent, not just to God, but to your spouse or your, your ex-wife or your ex-husband. Understand that God has a pathway toward forgiveness and wholeness, but it begins in coming to the one who is faithful and just, the one who is steadfast and loving. But wait, there's more. All of us here, whether we're married or not, have, 
have been unfaithful to God. Just as Israel was unfaithful toward God, even after all that he'd done and and after all that he'd revealed to them, right? So our invitation, all of us, is come to the one who loved us so much that he gave his only son, that, that we might not perish in our unfaithfulness. God is not content to leave us in our guilt and shame and unfaithfulness. Come to the one who loved us so much that he gave his only son that we might not perish in that unfaithfulness, but be spiritually recreated to a new life, a life of faithfulness, not our own, but being clothed in Christ's faithfulness, that we might be one even as the Father and the Son are one. God desires that unity and that oneness with you. Come to him. Church, the seventh commandment is for all of us because God is reconciling this unfaithful world to him through making us faithful as we come to Christ by faith. So Trinity, remember God. Trust in Jesus' work in your life and do not commit adultery. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, your, your word uh, is rich and living and active. And Lord, we, we trust, we, we say by faith that your word will continue to work in our hearts and minds beyond its reading here in our worship service this morning. Lord, for those of us who have been betrayed by another, I pray your grace and your blessing upon them, that you would pour out your, your care and your love and your mercy upon them, that they, that they might know a God who's heartbroken for the unfaithfulness that they've had to endure. May those individuals, Lord, who have been betrayed look to you and see a God who has been betrayed by his own people. And may they understand, may they they receive your grace and your care and your love. Lord, for those of us who have betrayed our marriage covenants, for those of us who have been unfaithful toward one another, Lord, Humble our hearts. Convict us, not just of what we've done, but help us to see the future that is ours as we repent and confess and draw near to you and experience your grace and your forgiveness and your love, that we might then be sent out to confess and repent to those we've hurt and seek reconciliation and healing and wholeness and oneness again. That's only possible through you, Christ. And so, Lord, we pray you would have your way in us and among us. And, Lord, we pray that you would make us, your people, a more faithful people, a people who who don't give space in our hearts to fantasize about the possible joy and contentment and satisfaction that we might find outside of our covenant with you, God. Help us to be a people whose will is exerted toward you and you alone that we might declare that you are our God, you are our only God, you are the one God that we will worship and bow down to and love and be faithful to. 
Make us a faithful people, we pray, Lord. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.